The scripture reading this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. It can be found on page 1007 in your Purack Bible or on the screen behind me. Would you please stand out of reverence for God's word? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living word that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those, by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you had yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul will not have no pleasure, has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's pray and ask the Lord to meet us. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for making yourself known to us. Um, Lord, would we not waste that this morning? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear you? Would you make our hearts attentive to what you have to say? May we hear it and be changed for your glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, when I was young, I was one of those kids who didn't like to try something new unless I was pretty sure that I would be good at it. So I learned pretty early on that I was not very good at sports. And so when middle school, high school came around, I didn't try out for lots of sports. Um, uh, when I was in college, if I could avoid it, I would not take a class that I wasn't sure I could get an A in. Uh, and if I took a class and wasn't getting an A in it, I would try and change it over to pass, no fail. Because if I didn't, couldn't do it well, I didn't want to do it. And I think that impulse, that impulse is true for a lot of us, even adventuresome types who will seemingly try anything and do everything. Everyone has their line at some point. The line between starting something new and staying put, between seeing something through or quitting in the middle. And for many of us, that line is what we call confidence. Life coaches and leadership gurus will talk a lot about the importance of confidence, how it's the key to success. It gives you the courage to start things, to step out, try something new, to show up and take risks. If I'm not confident in my ability to do well, then I'm not sure I'm going to actually try that. Um, and, And it fuels your resolve to finish things to persevere all the way to the end, to follow through, even when it gets hard. If I'm not confident in my ability to finish well, then I'm going to think about hitting the eject button halfway through. It's like a kid who won't finish a board game if they're losing. If I you know, take it and you know turn it over so no one else can keep playing, because if I'm not sure I can win, or if I don't think it's possible to win, I don't want to play anymore. We can do that. We need confidence to step out and to finish well. And there is a sense in which the same thing is true of our spiritual lives, that confidence is key to success. If we're going to make progress in our faith, if we're going to have the courage to move forward, we need confidence for that. If we're going to finish well, which is what this book has been calling us to do Uh, since the beginning, to not drift away or fall away, but to hold fast our confession with full assurance of hope till the end that we might inherit God's promises and enter his rest, then we need confidence to persevere, to endure all the way to the end. In fact, our passage this morning begins and ends talking about the importance of confidence. That since You have confidence and do not throw away your confidence. But where does that confidence come from? Or rather, in whom does our confidence rest? The blogs and the gurus and virtually every other voice around us will tell you that you need to believe in yourself. It's self-confidence that's most important. To, To look in the mirror... And tell yourself that you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. You know? That's what we're told. But that's not the message we've been hearing in the book of Hebrews, is it? The key to spiritual success and the call 
to spiritual perseverance does not come from within, but from above. This whole book so far has been one extended argument for the superiority of Christ above all things. That how Jesus is better. How in him we have a better word, a better messenger, a better brother, a better rest, a better promise, a better high priest, a better priesthood, a better covenant, a better purification, a better sacrifice, beginning to end, the message is that Christ is your confidence. Not what we have done for God, but what he has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son in the power of his spirit. And so Christ is your key to finishing well, to success, to holding fast. We hold fast to him. And, and the only way we're able to hold fast to Christ is because he's the one holding on to us. Christ is your confidence. But we do have a responsibility to hold fast. The Christian life is not passive. It is decidedly, decidedly active. We're not given our confidence in Christ so that we can just kind of sit back and do nothing with it. Or so that we could just continue on with whatever we were doing before we had Christ, continuing on in sin. Our confidence is a call to holiness and obedience, to worship and to intimacy, to encouragement and to hope. And as we come to chapter 10, uh, verse 19, we find a transition in the book of Hebrews where the author shifts from convincing us of Christ's supremacy to, that, to now calling us to live in light of that supremacy, to put our confidence in Christ into practice. And he explains what that looks like through three commands in our passage, three instructions or exhortations, which really form the heart of the text in front of us. Draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Listen to the repetition of the, uh, to, of the phrase, let us, in verses 22 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. There's the second one. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Three commands. Let us, let us, let us. To, to draw near, to hold fast, to stir up. That reiterate, um, that call us to put that confidence into practice. Now, the author anchors those three commands by reiterating the basis of our confidence. So that's where he starts. And so that's where we'll start in just a second in 19 to 21 with the basis of that confidence. And then after he gives those commands, he reminds us of the urgency of putting them into practice in verses 26 to 31, and then offers some inspiration of why to do so in 32 to 39. And so we'll talk about that as well. But 
that's the heart of the passage, these three exhortations. And so that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. What it means to put our confidence into action, our confidence in Christ. But first, the basis, the basis of our confidence, verses 19 to 21. So much of this book has been about helping us, helping his readers understand that the old covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai has been fulfilled in Christ, such that there's not only no reason to go back to it, but to do so would actually be to drift away, to fall away from the gospel. This is what others around this ancient church were apparently trying to convince them to do, to let go of Jesus, to go back to Judaism to live as though Jesus wasn't the Messiah or that the Christ hadn't come, as though the law of Moses was still the way to relate to God. But like a a seasoned lawyer who systematically dismantles the case of his opponent, the author has shown at every turn how Jesus is better, right? And, And now he takes that whole long argument of the first 10 chapters and summarizes it in a couple of verses here to reiterate the basis for the confidence we have. And he does it in terms of the access we have to God through Jesus and the advocate that we have before God in Jesus. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, access And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, advocacy. That's his summary, the basis, access and advocacy. When I was in college, and and I've probably told this story before, but when I was in college, I was sitting in a coffee shop one night studying um, when a couple of guys walked by and were talking to the different patrons, and I noticed, I recognized the label on one of their jackets was the, the logo of a band uh, who was in town, I had tickets for a concert for this band the next night. And turns out these were a couple of the band members going around schmoozing with locals, giving away backstage passes, of which me and my roommate became happy uh, participants in that. And when you think about it, not anyone can just walk backstage before a rock concert or whatever and just show up. Unless you're Nancy Northgraves and you're on first name basis with all of them. That just... Nobody else can do that. You have to have a pass. And it feels a little bit presumptuous to kind of, you know, just go there behind the curtain and talk with the band. But if you've got that pass, you've got confidence to go back there. And and not only did I have the confidence to show up and go back there, uh, when I got back there, the, the drummer who had given me the pass remembered my name. I had not only access, I had an advocate. If someone tried to kind of bounce me, he could vouch for me that that he really did give me that pass. Well, in Christ, we have something so much better than the chance to hang out with some uh, band uh, rock stars or whatever before a show. We have been invited into the very presence of God. Think about that. The creator and king of the universe, the savior and the judge of all humanity invites us into his presence. If it's intimidating to think about going backstage for a concert, how much more so 
to approach the throne of God. But we have confidence to do so because we have access and an advocate. We have access through Jesus. His blood cleanses us in a way that the sacrifices of the old covenant never could. His death really is enough to cover us, to cleanse us from all our sin, to make us fit for God's presence for all time. And we have an advocate. Christ is our great high priest who knows our name and who vouches for us in the presence of his Father, for all who've been united with him by faith. And so that's the basis. That's, that's the whole first ten chapters of the book in a nutshell. That Jesus is better. He gives us access to God. He's our advocate before the Father. Our confidence is in Christ. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's the basis. But what do we do with that confidence? What do we do with it? And now we come to the three main commands. Draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Uh, Verse 22 is the first one. Draw near. Since we have confidence on the basis of that, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are invited to draw near to God in worship. Imagine receiving a backstage pass and not using it. You know, why would you do that? I can, I can think of a couple of reasons. Uh, maybe you don't particularly care for the band. You know? I mean, a backstage pass for you know, Imagine Dragons or, or, or whoever today, that'd be kind of cool. I'd be there for that. But backstage pass for Nickelback? I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to the concert even. And so, so maybe we don't respond to that invitation because we don't value the one who invited us. You know, we're unimpressed with God. There are other things more important to us, or we don't really see our need for him. You know, things are going well right now. When they get a little hard, (laughs) I got his number, but right now I got this. You know, we're good. And so perhaps we fail to draw near because we have a low view of God and an inflated view of ourselves. But a second reason uh, that we might not put that pass into practice Um, and I think the one he's addressing more directly here, is a sense of insecurity and unworthiness. Who am I to actually do that? I mean, I don't belong back there with all these, you know, celebrity types. Uh, What will they think of me? Like, what do I wear so that I can impress them? Or, Or what if they kick me out or ignore me or reject me? We have this insecurity about actually cashing in on that invitation. But that's exactly the kind of thing we need not fear if we approach God through Christ. We have confidence to enter, to draw near, not on the basis of our work or our clothes or whatever we might think, but on the basis of his finished work for us. It's through Christ and the new covenant in him that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, that conscience that, that you know, well, I, I know what I did, 
this morning and last week. I, 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 I know how far I've fallen short. The blood of Christ sprinkles us clean. And our bodies washed with pure water. We are cleansed inside and outside by the cross of Christ. Such that we need not fear or be insecure about our access to God. But we can draw near to Him with confidence. With a true heart in full assurance of faith. What does it mean to draw near? What does it mean to draw near? For ancient Israel, it meant going to the temple, right? Uh, that's where God's special presence was among his people. And so, uh, does, is he talking about coming to church? Is that what it means to draw near? Kind of, but not exclusively. Because Jesus is the true temple, God's special presence among his people is no longer fixed to a place, but to a person. Jesus is with us by the Spirit, wherever we are, wherever we gather. And so to draw near to God is to approach Him through Jesus, by the Spirit, again, wherever we are, both personally and corporately, in prayer and in worship. Not just in singing. When we talk about worship, that's more than music. That's a whole life of honoring, of serving God. It's treating God like God in every way listening to his word, praying to him, crying out, singing his praise, spending time enjoying God, sitting at his feet. God has invited us into an intimate relationship with him, to spend time with him, to delight in him, to rest in him, to cry out for help from him. And we have confidence to draw near, to enter his presence through Christ. So putting our confidence into action, the first command is to draw near. Not just acknowledge that, hey, I've got this pass and I could use it whenever I want. Put it into practice. Draw near. That's number one. Second, the second command comes in verse 23. Hold fast. Since we have confidence, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And by confession of hope, he's talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the the superiority of Christ, our Savior, which is what he's been talking about the entire book so far. As we've seen throughout this book, letting go of the gospel is exactly what those who were pressuring this ancient church wanted them to do, which is, again, why he's been arguing so extensively for the superiority of Christ, that there is no better Savior, there's no uh, better priest, there's no better sacrifice, and therefore, there's no better inheritance, no greater prize, no other way of salvation than Christ. Take confidence in that. Hold on to that without wavering. Not because we're so strong, but because God is so faithful. He will complete what he started. And he's proven it through the cross and resurrection. Thousands of years of planning and promising, and he did not let it fall idle. He kept his word. He sent his son His son accomplished everything he sent him to do. He's proven it through the cross and the resurrection. God is faithful. 
Hold fast to that without wavering. Now, does that mean I'm not allowed to uh, entertain a doubt that I might have without wavering? Does that mean I just have to stuff that kind of stuff? If there's a, a question or, or a doubt or, or something like that that rises up that I'm not, you know, no, you're, you're still going to run into doubts. You're still going to run into questions. Nor does it mean that we'll never be tempted to, to look at a different path. What it does mean is that when we have doubts or when we are tempted, we take the gospel seriously enough to not let that become an excuse to go over here, but to take that doubt or that temptation and hold it up against the standard of the cross to really, truly wrestle and weigh it out. Sometimes it's giving into the temptation that actually causes us to doubt. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story about a, a tactic, one that he admittedly said was almost too cruel to use, that an old college pastor associate of his used when catching up with college students who were home from school. He would ask them to go to, to coffee with him to catch up on life, and when he'd come to the state of their spiritual lives, they'd often hem and haw, talking about the, the difficulties and doubts now that they've taken a little philosophy or maybe a science class or two, and how it all started to shake the foundations. At that point, he'd look at them and ask one question. So who have you been sleeping with? Shocked, their faces would inevitably fall and say something along the lines of, how did you know? Or a real conversation would ensue. Sometimes the drift comes not with the doubts, but we drift first morally, and then we begin to reconsider our doctrine out of guilt and insecurity and in order to justify our behavior. There's lots of ways to let go of the gospel. And so we're called here to hold fast because the gospel of Jesus is so much better, both for truth and for life. We can't use our doubts as an excuse to do what we want. Instead, we look to Jesus to remind ourselves what we've already learned, what he has been drilling into us throughout this book, that there's no other solution that can cover our sin. We don't need to change our doctrine to deal with our guilt. We just need to go back to the cross. There's no other advocate who can reconcile us before the Father. And there's no other story, world story, cultural story, religious story, there's no other story that allows us to be brutally honest with the brokenness of this world and yet at the same time hopeful, deeply hopeful that God is making all things new. Only the gospel lets us be both honest about sin and brokenness and hopeful that that's not the end of the story. Every other story makes you choose one or the other. Jesus is better. There's no other gospel than Jesus. And, and, and that's hard. That's hard to hold on to, right? Because we are being pressured in every direction to let go. The reality is we cannot do it alone. We can't hold fast to the gospel. We won't do it well without help. 
And that's the third instruction that we get to in verses 24 to 25. Stir up. Since we have confidence, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This spring, one of our children is um, participating in a track club. And as the kids run like the 100 or the 200 or the 800, the last leg of whatever race they're in goes right past the section where all of the parents sit. And it's been interesting to notice two things over the last few weeks as I've been there. First, almost every kid, as they pass by that parent section, glances to their right to see if they could see mom and dad while they're running. And second, when they see mom and dad, or when they hear their voice cheering, they run faster. There's this little spurt. We were made for community. We long for it, and we perform better in community. We're spurred on through it. And the same thing is true for walking with Christ. We need to consider How can I help others walk with Jesus better? How can I help them fight sin better? How can I encourage them to hold the line? How can I stir them up, spur them on to keep their eye on the goal toward love and good works, toward affection for God and for each other, and toward holiness in serving God and others? We need to stir up one another. And there's lots of ways we can do that. Words of encouragement. That's huge. You know, just cheering one another on, praying for each other, holding each other accountable, opening God's word together, mentoring or modeling the Christian faith. What Jesse talked about earlier, being able to kind of walk side by side with these young women, these young believers to help them see what it looks like to follow Jesus even when it's hard. But all of that requires one essential ingredient, spending time together. Spending time together. That's that's what he emphasizes here. Consider how you can do it, but the one thing you're going to need to do it is not to neglect meeting together. If you don't spend time with each other, you can't spur one another on. And meeting together, again, that can take lots of forms as well. That might be coffee with a friend. That might be participating in a home group or a Bible study. Uh, Everyone should have someone in their life who knows them without the mask, who can ask them any question and get an honest answer, with whom they can pray or cry or laugh, who will say hard things and yet you know they still love you. We need those kinds of relationships if we're going to hold fast to the gospel. If you don't have that kind of relationship, be praying that God would provide it and be preparing yourself for an honest relationship. There are lots of ways to meet together. It's not just a Sunday morning thing, though it is not less than a Sunday morning thing. In its most foundational form, For the life of a local church, meeting together is that gathered worship on the Lord's day, going to church. 
And of all of the ways that it's easy to neglect meeting together, that one's just as easy as all the others, if not more so sometimes. Because I can, I can reschedule a coffee, but, but that Sunday morning time, that's hard. It's the weekend. We're tired. We want to get away. We, we want to sleep in. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Our kids have sports activities. That's a, that's a hard one. And this is the first generation that's had to deal with that in history. This is new territory for the people of God. There's no shortage of demands on our time, and there's nothing sacred about Sunday morning in our culture anymore. It used to be that Sunday morning was off limits, right? You, know, we, you weren't allowed to plan anything or whatever. Then somebody discovered, that's prime real estate, baby. All of this space is open. There's no, nobody's reserved the ballpark yet. We've got this here. And, and so now, if your kids want to be involved in sports, you often have to choose between that and church. That's hard to navigate. Um, I get it. We ran into that last fall when we signed up uh, one of our kids for a program, a sports program, and realized afterwards that all of the meets were Sunday morning. We didn't see that in the fine print. And so what do you do? You know, your, your child's putting in all this hard work and all the practices. What do you do with that? We picked two meets that he could go to, and then, you know, we miss the rest of them. I don't know if that was the right decision or not, but here's what's at stake. The message that we're giving a generation of our young people is that church is something you go to if it fits into your schedule. And then we're surprised later in life when they don't value it. I have seen that over and over and over again. Meeting together is more than Sunday morning, but it's not less than Sunday morning. And Sunday morning, it's the only time in the week where we're truly gathered as a local church. The whole body together in one place as one body under the word, united in worship and prayer. If we want to finish well, we need to hang together. We need to hang together to put our confidence into action. And that means we cannot neglect meeting together. We must be present to spur one another on. There's an urgency in putting our confidence into practice, in drawing near, holding fast, stirring up. There's an urgency, but it's worth it. And those are the last two notes that the passage, passage ends on, the urgency and the inspiration. And much more briefly here, if you look at verses 26 to 31, we have another strong warning. Hebrews has a few of these. They're enough to keep you up at night. They're not to be neglected either. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we don't put our confidence into practice, we will eventually continue in deliberate sin. There's no neutral ground with Jesus. You're either following him or not. And, and drifting from the gospel, falling away from God, there's a serious danger in that. We can't take 
Christ for granted or his finished work for granted and go on deliberately sinning even though we know what the truth is. To do so would be to undercut all that Christ has done and essentially forfeit the benefit of Christ's blood. That's the warning here, and it is sharp. You'll cut yourself on these verses. And it almost seems to unravel what we just saw in the previous section last week, the first half of chapter 10, and the the confidence that the author established in us that, that Christ has already perfected for all time those who are being justified. How can that be true? And then you end up with this warning in the same chapter. But it's a warning that we must heed even as we hold fast to divine sovereignty and eternal security. The fact that God forgives us is no excuse to keep on sinning. And if I'm not convicted of my sin, if I don't want to change, if it doesn't break my heart when I let God down, then I have some hard questions I need to ask myself about which Savior I'm really following. We cannot take grace for granted. Hiding under the cover of God's covenant community, lest we come under judgment and be exposed as ultimately not really belonging to Christ. And and that's true not just for me, but for my friends as well. Remember what he just got done saying. We need to be spurring one another on. So the urgency is not just for me. It's for my friends and family who might be drifting or tempted to fall away. We need to call each other to take the gospel seriously in the midst of temptations and doubts. And so there is an urgency to it. There's an urgency to it. But the author himself is confident of much better things for his readers even as he calls to put their confidence in Christ into action. And that's the note he ends on in verses 32 to 39, to inspire them to persevere, to endure, to not throw away their confidence, because it has a great reward. And part of what gives the author confidence that, you know, here's the warning, we need to wrestle honestly with it, but I'm actually confident that you're not going to fall prey to that warning Part of what gives him confidence uh, in his readers is because they've already experienced what it's like to choose Christ in hard situations. He reminds them in verse 32 of their experience when they first came to Christ. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I mean, think about that. Who joyfully accepts somebody walking into your house and hauling your stuff off? Why would you joyfully accept that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. If you have Christ... There's nothing this world can do to you or take away from you that can compare with the rest and the inheritance that we have to look forward to. Therefore, 
do not throw away your confidence, for it has a great reward. Draw near, hold fast, stir up, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Christ has done the work, and he's called us to live with confidence in it. Don't throw away that confidence. Don't waste it. Finish well by faith. That's where he's going in the next chapter, chapter 11. And that's where he lands in chapter 10, this call to finish well by faith. And he does it by citing Habakkuk 2. We looked at this book last Christmas. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But listen, listen to this urgency, this inspiration, this confidence he has in his readers. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We have Jesus. We have something better. It takes Confidence to risk drawing near to God. It takes confidence to hold fast to the gospel all the way to the end. And it builds confidence to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, to keep meeting together. And we have that confidence in Christ our Redeemer. Confidence to enter the holy places, the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus, our great high priest, Confidence that our sin really has been paid in full. Past, present, future. Confidence that God will keep every one of his promises. My prayer is that this book will be at work in our souls, building that kind of Christ-saturated confidence that we might finish well, individually and as a church. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer, that we would not throw away our confidence. Lord, thank you that we have access to you and an advocate before you in Jesus. Would you give us strength by your spirit to put that into practice, Lord, to draw near with true hearts and full assurance of faith, to hold fast to your gospel without wavering, And to consider all of the ways that we can be spurring one another on, Lord. Spending time together to help each other walk faithfully and joyfully with you. Lord, keep us on the path. Keep us close to the cross. Your Spirit's the one who has the power to answer that. And so we pray it would be true among us. And we pray that there would be joy in that perseverance, Lord. Because there is a better and a lasting 
possession. That whatever this world can do to us and whatever it tries to take away, if we have Jesus, we have lost nothing. God, may that spur our hearts on. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.